Sometimes it's tough for the life of Christ to come into our lives because of long habits or long absence or willfulness. It's something we can always learn from. But once the light is lit, it goes and it goes and it goes. I want to thank this morning Lee Strobel, whose book, The Case for Christmas, is the basis for this four-week series. Um, My first church out of seminary was in California in the town of Los Altos. It was the center of uh, chips being developed, uh, Silicon Valley it's known as. I had several people in the church who have patents on uh, microchips that they developed while I was there uh, serving that church. And so I was working with a group of people who were scientists primarily, and they were geeks from the get-go. Wonderful people. We had a wonderful time together. But they were always looking for scientific evidence to help them understand the reality of the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures don't come to us as science. They come to us as story. They come to us as history. They come to us as God's way of saying, here I am, here's how I work, here's what I long for. But they look for scientific evidence. So, We begin this series as we look for some scientific evidence to discover who's in the manger. Before I get there, nearly every evening on television, if you happen to watch it, you'll discover a program that seeks to find out what really happened. Of course, everything gets solved in a half hour or an hour at the most. They want to find a missing person. They want to solve a crime. They want to prove innocence or guilt, whatsoever it is. Shows like CSI, NCIS, Cold Case, Body of Evidence, and some of these are now doing reruns. There are more and more of these every night. The series we have now will be similar to these programs as we try to discover who's in the manger. Now, you may be saying, I know who's in the manger. What are you talking about? It's not a surprise that you know that. But what kind of data do we really have? Is it faith alone? Is it just because you've heard something since you were a child? But how many people have been duped since they were children into believing things that are not true? What kind of data do we have? For years, the clincher in court cases was the eyewitness. The prosecutor would ask the question, Did you witness the crime? The witness answers, Yes. The prosecutor asks a follow-up question. And is the person that committed that crime in the courtroom today? And if so, would you point that person out? The witness responds, yes. The person who committed the crime is the defendant. The person sitting over there and points to the defendant. All this was done week after week as a child growing up with Perry Mason, some of you may remember Perry as he solved crimes so quickly. But let's look at the eyewitness and what really goes on. First, the definition. An eyewitness is one who sees an occurrence or an object, especially one who gives a report on what he or she has seen. The problem with eyewitnesses in today's legal system is that the people, what the people saw is not dependable. Have three people who saw the same thing tell you what they saw, and you will invariably get different versions from each one of them. 
even though they reportedly saw the same thing. So the question arises, how can we know that what the apostles and authors of the gospel have given us is true, that it's not biased or slanted in some way? In other words, can the gospels, the biographies of Jesus, be trusted? Can we trust what's written in our scripture? Pray with me as we seek to answer this question. Father, open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to genuinely hear from you and your Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures today. Help us to learn from the evidence we consider this morning so that we might, in reality and in faith, know who is in the manger. Amen. Reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught." And then from 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. The end of the reading. To begin with, we must note, there is much difference between witnessing a one-time event that happens, and usually in the presence of people we do not or have never known, and the witnessing of events over three and one-half years with a group of friends and traveling companions. That's the first point. One time versus overtime. The writers of the biographies of Jesus were people who had far more than one-time experience with him. These people, for the most part, were witnesses of the events over the complete three and a half years with Jesus, along with a group of other friends and companions as he traveled around Israel. There will be differences in their accounts of what they saw and heard, because not everyone was always present, and because people are affected differently by things that happen. Thus, we have four Gospels, all with a different slant, all with a different focus. Matthew to prove to the Jews that he was the Messiah. Mark to show the Romans that real power is in being a servant. Luke written to the Greeks to show that Jesus was the perfect man they'd always been looking for. And John written to everybody to show that Jesus was God's son and had come to redeem the world. But these people saw some events. They were sitting on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and a little boy's lunch fed 5,000 people. Some were absolutely stunned by it. Some were wondering, how in the world did he do that? I can't imagine what was going on in the mind of the little boy. 
And then they gathered up 12 basket loads of leftovers after everyone had been fed. Where did the baskets come from? Who was hauling those around? I mean, it's just amazing stuff. And yet it's included in every one of the Gospels because they saw it, they experienced it. Or stories that Jesus told. Most of them were parables, some were allegories. But these were stories that helped them understand things that they couldn't have understood before. Or stilling the storm on Galilee. Galilee is just a lake. It's not even very big. But in Israel, the water is scary because there's so much desert and rock and very little water. The water is scary to the people in Israel. Always has been. Have you ever heard of the Israeli Navy? Anyway, the Sea of Galilee is very shallow. Shallow water gets rougher faster. If you're in a storm, go to deep water. You anchor deep in a storm. Galilee, at best, is about 40, 45 feet deep. So when the wind comes up down from the mountainsides either direction, it causes a huge storm. They were in a boat. They were in a storm, the disciples, with Jesus. And he said, be still. Was it for them to be still? Well, yes, because they were terrified. But it stilled the storm. They experienced it. Or Lazarus, their friend in Jerusalem, actually in the town of Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem at the time. And they would stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha every time they came to Jerusalem, which was not often. And they saw how sad the family was when Lazarus had died. It had been over three days. He was in the tomb. And Jesus had them roll the rock away, and Lazarus came out and was unbound alive. They experienced these over time. Not just one event, but event upon event upon event to see who this man was, Jesus. It is important to note that these biographies are accounts written or directed by people who experienced many years with Jesus, and they were his friends. But it wasn't a one-time, it was overtime. And there's the second point. These biographies, these Gospels, were written by friends. Okay, there's a problem with this, isn't there? There's a concern about the reliability of stories told by friends and companions, you know, the conflict of interest issues that get raised all the time? Well, let's look at some definitions first. Friend, one attached to another by affection or esteem. Friendship, a relationship of mutual trust and congeniality. I remember many years ago sitting in a conference room with three lawyers, an alleged victim, an alleged perpetrator, as well as three witnesses to mediate, to mediate the issue outside of the court proceedings in hopes of solving what had happened. One of the witnesses was speaking about his experience to what happened. He was neither defending nor excusing the alleged perpetrator, nor was he defaming the alleged victim, but was putting into perspective his experience with each of the parties, both of whom he knew rather well. One of the lawyers dismissed the witness because he was a friend of the alleged perpetrator. It was at that moment that I experienced something profound. This witness, accused of being a friend working on the negative side, responded to the lawyer, You have, sir, no idea what a friend really is. No one has been excusing any behavior that happened here, and it happened. There was no excuse for it. 
No one has been harder on my friend than I have been in the weeks that we have been looking at this ordeal that he put himself into. No, a true friend does not cover by twisting the truth and certainly not lying about events. A true friend just sticks with someone in the midst of the truth, in the reality of trouble, in all times. That lawyer never spoke again, and rightfully so. He had misunderstood what a true friend is all about. It is true, the writers of the New Testament were friends with Jesus, but they were real friends. Their writings reveal over and over again doubt. If they had been false friends, they would have been talking all kinds of things without any doubt whatsoever. But they doubted a lot. They're a lot like us. We wonder. We doubt. Their writings reveal confusion. Most of the time, they were confused. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. What he said and what he did, they just didn't get it. I wonder if we do, even though we claim to be his friends, But we admit our guilt, do we not, with each other? We seek to find the truth in understanding what Jesus did and what Jesus said. It is true. They were friends, but they were real friends. The truth is it would be hard to find someone who would willingly die for something they knew was not true or they had major concerns about. Even more true is this. Every eyewitness, every author of a Jesus biography would willingly die with no exception. And that's the third point. These were friends who willingly died for him and for what they had experienced and heard from him. Hear this. It was not just that Jesus' friends were willing to die for him and the truth of his life and teachings. It was because they lived for him and taught about him, and proclaimed him to be the Messiah of God that got them persecuted and ultimately killed. In each case, these friends of Jesus were committed to living for the truth, the truth of all they had seen and heard and consequently were willing to die for. How did the apostles and the authors die? James John's brother from Galilee was the first to go. In 44 AD, he was beheaded. Matthew, also known as Levi, was killed in 60 AD. He was axed to death and then burned. James, the son of Alphaeus, in 66 AD, was thrown from the temple tower and then clubbed to death on the grounds. Paul, in 66 AD, was beheaded. Peter, in 68 A.D., was crucified head down. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, in 72 A.D., was crucified. Andrew, we do not know the year that he was killed, but he was crucified by ropes. It was a two-day ordeal, the most painful of crucifixions that there is. Philip, we do not know the date of his death, was also crucified. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was beaten, flayed, and crucified head down. Thomas, the one who doubted, but who spoke for all of us when he raised his doubts and Jesus honored him. Thomas, we do not know the date, but he was lanced and then burned in an oven. Simon, the zealot, 
we do not know the date, was crucified. Matthias, Judah's replacement, was stoned and beheaded. John, James' brother, was, died at, the, uh, at an old age in 98 AD. He had been removed from society and sent to the island of Patmos. Mark, who wrote the gospel, also known as John Mark, was killed in 68 AD. A rope was placed around his neck, and he was dragged through the streets of Alexandria until he died. And Luke, we do not know the date, and there are no concrete facts that we have about his death. These men were willing to die for what they had experienced with their Jesus. Not one turned back. To die is an enormous act, but it's a one-off event. Many people die for many reasons. It really takes more courage, more faith, more chutzpah to live your life in the faith. These disciples and gospel authors did both. They lived for Jesus and they were willing to die for him and not recount a single thing that they had written or experienced or reported. They died rather than denounce what they had seen, heard, and written. One final point. There are and were no credible eyewitnesses who debunked the gospel accounts. Not one. Oh, there are certainly people who did not believe. But there are no credible eyewitnesses who debunked their stories and what they wrote. Additionally, there were plenty of other people who were still alive when these gospels were written who could have responded to the truth if, in fact, these were lies. There is no credible refutation. Again, there are people who believe and believe in, do not believe and do not believe strongly, but there's no credible refutation, no debunking of these biographies and what they teach by any contemporaries of any account. Most of us don't know these things because we have believed since we were children in many cases, about Jesus being in the manger, Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus telling these stories, and this history being reality. But we're blessed. We were raised with it, many of us. Some were not. They need these helps. That's why apologetics is so important, especially when I was serving in a community that was made up mostly of scientists to look at credible reports to help them understand what is written here you can be counting on. What was said about this man in terms of what he did is reliable. There were no refutations of any kind. There was disbelief at best, but mostly there were people who said, that's right, that's what happened. So how do we apply this for our lives today? Well, one is you can use this as a witness with those folks who question whether or not Jesus really was and was in this manger. But there's some others. I begin by saying, I was not an eyewitness of Jesus as he walked in Israel. Some children think I'm really old. (laughs) Because I was born in the last millennium, but it took a couple of millenniums to get all the way back there. 
I was not in Bethlehem when he was born. I did not hear him teach and tell stories. I did not see him heal people. I did not see him raise Lazarus from the dead. I did not see any other miracle it said that he performed. I did not see him crucified. I did not see him raised from the dead. I did not see him ascend into heaven. But I am an eyewitness of the experience of salvation that he has distributed to the world. I am an eyewitness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I am an eyewitness of the miracles performed in his name. I've experienced personally and in the lives of others miraculous healings, reconciliations of long-time brokenness, prophetic words, those I have experienced as an eyewitness. I am an eyewitness of a changed life. I'm an eyewitness of these things because I've seen them in the lives of other people. And I'm an eyewitness of these because these have happened in my own life. I am not the person I was when I was a teen. I'm not the person I was when I was a young adult. I'm not the person I was when I was middle-aged. I am the person I am today because of what Jesus has done during all of those years in my life. I'm not the same at all. You would be surprised at the changes he has made. Are you an eyewitness of these things? Jesus has been a friend to me as well as my Savior and my Lord. I'm a friend of his. I am willing to live for him. To become like him is my goal. To do his bidding with others that I know in life is my goal. To love, to forgive, to help, to encourage, and yes, even to die. Are you a friend of Jesus? Are you an eyewitness of his work in a life today? May it be so. May it truly be so. This morning, in a few moments, you'll be invited for Holy Communion. And I encourage you to come to this table of grace and begin that friendship if you haven't already. And I also encourage you to come to this table of grace and celebrate that friendship. The biographies of Jesus can be trusted, written by friends. Over time, they saw and heard, and they've given to us the reality of their stories of the Messiah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ. Amen.